0: Welcome back to The Great Myths. I wanted to finish up the episodes on ancient Egypt today with an excerpt from probably the most famous account of Egypt that comes to us from the classical world, that from Herodotus and his history. Uh, Before we get to it, I thought that a, a small background on Herodotus would be worthwhile. And this is something that comes from the Oxford Encyclopedia of Ancient Egypt. And it says that the early books of Herodotus' history describe the preliminaries to the invasion of Greece by the Persian emperors Darius and Xerxes, and they are used to define the religious, cultural, and moral issues as seen from a Greek perspective. Therefore, they serve not only to outline the expansion of the Persian Empire, but also to characterize both the Greek states and the people brought under Persian control, building a picture of the resources of the empire and creating a dynamic sense of approaching menace, which ends with the crescendo of the great assaults on Greece in 490 and 480 BCE. Within this context, Egypt, then a major part of the Persian Empire, receives fuller treatment than any other state. The whole of Book two of Herodotus's history is devoted to Egypt, as well as the early section of Book Three, though references to things Egyptian also occur elsewhere in the book. Herodotus's sources for Egypt are easily identified. He is much given to emphasizing his autonomy and acquiring information describing his entire work as, quote, a personal inquiry, end quote. and he claims to have traveled through the country himself, a claim which is generally, though not universally, conceded. And if we assume that he did go to Egypt, the date of his visit there is probably between 449 and 430 BCE. The essay goes on to say that Herodotus' account of Egypt is all-embracing, At Book Two, One, he gives the justification for his discussion, the incorporation of Egypt into the Persian Empire, and then proceeds to investigate the antiquity of Egyptian civilization, chapters 2 to 4, the geography of Egypt, 6 through 18, the Nile and its behavior, 19 through 34, and, most tellingly, Egyptian manners and customs, with particular emphasis on things religious, Chapters 35 through 98. Now the part that I'm going to read from today is fairly small, but it's a wonderful description that he gives of the embalming and and mummification process. And later on in the Oxford Encyclopedia of Ancient Egypt, uh, this fact should surprise no one if you've listened to the other episodes about Ancient Egypt, but it is worth uh, repeating here. It says, There is no extant Egyptian description of the technical processes involved in mummification. The earliest available accounts occur in the writings of two Greek historians, Herodotus, 5th century BCE, and Diodorus Siculus, 1st century BCE. So as with much else that I've shared here, we have a culture that survives for very nearly 4,000 years, and has writing for more than 3,000 years of that, and yet when it comes to their most enduring stories, and in this case perhaps their most enduring funerary practice, there is no complete uh, surviving record of, no instruction manual of how they would have done it. Um, this doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't one at some point, but just that one didn't survive, or that it didn't survive outside of the perhaps secret confines of the workers who did it. Uh, this is Herodotus's description. He says, and this is starting in uh, Chapter two, eighty-five from Herodotus's account. Now, I will describe the way they mourn and bury their dead. When someone highly esteemed in their household dies, the women of that household plaster their heads and faces all over with mud. Then, leaving the corpse at home, they wander throughout the city, beating their chests, binding up their garments and exposing their breasts. And they are accompanied by all their female relatives. The men also beat their chests and bind up their garments. When they have finished performing this ritual, they carry the body away to be embalmed. There are men in Egypt whose profession it is to embalm corpses. Whenever a body is brought to them, they display painted wooden replicas of corpses to those who brought it, and they describe the most elaborate method of embalming using an image whose name I will not reveal in this context, since I would consider that a religious offense. Then, they demonstrate a second method, which is inferior to the first, but cheaper, and also a third, the cheapest of all. Having explained all this to their clients, the embalmers ask them to select the method by which they wish to have the body prepared. After they have agreed on a price, the clients then depart leaving the embalmers alone in their quarters to perform their craft. The most elaborate method is performed in the following way. First, they draw out part of the brain through the nostrils with a curved iron implement. Then they extract the rest by pouring in drugs. After this, they make a slit with a sharp Ethiopian stone along the flank, from which they extract the entire contents Of the abdomen. Then, when they have cleaned and washed out the abdominal cavity with Phoenician date palm wine, they clean it once more with crushed spices. Next, they fill the abdomen with pure ground myrrh, cassia, and other fragrant substances, except for frankincense, and then they stitch it up again. When all this has been done, They embalm the body by covering it completely with natron for 70 days. It is not permitted to embalm for longer than this. And when the 70 days are up, they bathe the body and wrap all of it up in bandages cut from fine linen and smeared with gum, which the Egyptians generally use in place of glue. Then the corpse is handed over to the relatives, who enclose it in a hollow wooden coffin, crafted to resemble a human, which they have had made for this purpose. And once the coffin is closed, they stow it away in a burial chamber, standing it upright against a wall. That is the most expensive method they employ for embalming corpses. But for those who wish to avoid the highest costs, and to accept a cheaper method, they embalm them in the following way. When they have filled syringes with oil of cedar, they introduce the oil into the bowels through the anus, so that they neither make cuts in the body nor remove the belly. After the oil has been injected, they stop up the orifice to prevent it from flowing back out, and then they embalm the body for a set number of days. On the last day, they let out the oil, which is so potent that it flushes out along with it the now completely dissolved abdominal contents and the internal organs. The natron has by then dissolved the flesh, so that now all that is left of the corpse is skin and bones. After this, they return the body with no further ado. For the third and least expensive method of embalming, which is performed for the poor, they rinse out the bowels with fresh, with oil of radish, embalm the body in natron for seventy days, and then return it to be carried away. But when wives of prominent men, or very beautiful or noteworthy women die, they do not deliver their bodies to be embalmed at once. They give them over only on the second or third day after their death, so that the embalmers do not have intercourse with the dead woman's body for they say that one was once caught in the act of having intercourse with a woman's fresh corpse and that this crime was disclosed by his co-worker if any one egyptian or foreigner is snatched away by a crocodile or has clearly drowned due to the force of the river itself it is absolutely necessary that the inhabitants of whatever city to which the body floats have it embalmed laid out and buried in a sacred tomb In the best manner possible. No one, not even friends or relatives, are permitted to touch the corpse, except for the priests of the Nile themselves. Their hands alone come in contact with the body during its burial, on the grounds that its status is above and beyond that of a human." Now that is about two pages in the translation that I have, and there's just so much right here um, it's so striking to me that uh, first you have an account of how a beautiful woman's body is left to rot for a few days before they hand it over to the embalmers uh, just in case any any of the embalmers might want to have sex with it. And that calls to mind all kinds of religious and social prohibitions. But then in the very next paragraph, the immense religiosity comes forth again. If someone drowns in the river, uh, it is the responsibility of the place where it lands, I guess you would say, to make sure the body is buried. Um, that That's incredible to me that both of those Both of those details are one right after the other. When I spent some time studying the religion of ancient Egypt, one of the things I wondered was how much of all of this was done for the poor, and how much was the piety that these texts mention actually put into practice, when you know that tombs were broken into by robbers Uh, in the ancient world by Egyptians and and later by by others as well. How seriously did they really take these rituals and many of the texts that I've read already and how much of it did people just sort of nod and uh, allow it to go by living under an authoritarian pharaoh. Um, And again the idea of the poor. How much did all of this affect or inform poor people who obviously could not afford uh, a small stone tomb let alone a pyramid for themselves if you imagine that a pharaoh has uh, spells carved onto his walls of his tomb or later on if people anybody with money could have a book of the dead uh, scroll uh, put into their tomb Or if you can imagine that all throughout Egyptian history, family members were supposed to bring food to their tombs to keep them well fed. And barring that not being able to happen for some reason, they painted pictures of people being served food um, to keep their dead family members fed. All of these things, all of these different versions of death insurance, to make sure that your dead are still being taken care of it was a fascinating thing to consider what someone in ancient egypt who was poor and illiterate and had no access to priests or scribes or anything of the kind was it believed among these poor people that they didn't have access to any of these things and therefore their dead were just dead, and that was it? Or did they believe something else? Did some of these beliefs filter down sort of in a, in a folk way, fragmented, that still held them up somehow? Uh, and you sort of hear that in uh, the possibility of that in this account, where there are three levels of, of embalming and mummification, and apparently all three of them uh, work, you would say, for the gods. It's an interesting question, and I, as the, as the teacher uh, I studied under told me, uh, I was basically asking questions that other people should answer, because I did not have the equipment to answer them, and I still really don't. So I will close out with Egypt with the words of those people who will probably end up answering those questions um doing the series on on Egypt brought me back to this book that I've been reading from a lot lately here uh, the oxford encyclopedia of ancient egypt and there are two articles in here by a man named Vincent Tobin one is about egyptian mythology and and the other is about mythological texts and i just wanted to read three small passages From his essays as a way of closing out with Egypt much of this will have been mentioned in the uh, the uh, previous four episodes on Egyptian mythology but it is put much better here than I I think I have done spontaneously just talking although the term myth is often used to signify any type of traditional story or legend For scholars, it is highly specific. A myth is a spoken word, statement, or narrative that is used frequently within a cultic setting to articulate realities that cannot be defined in a totally rational manner. Myth is a means of sacred revelation, a method of communication that functions through symbolic expression and has its own inner logic a logic belonging to the realm of the mystical and metaphysical, rather than to that of reason and rationality. Although this definition implies that myth has a spiritual purpose, it can encompass a wide variety of topics. There are myths of creation, myths of the gods, historical or semi-historical myths, heroic myths, political myths, myths of national identity, and psychological myths, among others. In all myth, the oral aspect is essential because to the ancient mind the spoken word was a creative force that evoked the reality of the entity or event named. The term myth is thus an appropriate one for denoting the statements that the Egyptians made concerning their gods and their environment since it reflects their consciousness Of the reality and mystery of the divine. Because of its revelatory function, authentic myth does not adapt well to written form. Myths can be recorded in writing, but they run the risk of becoming dogmatic and unable properly to articulate the continuing revelation of the living world of the divine. The Western mind often thinks of myth in terms of the Greco-Roman mythic tradition. The latter, however, lost much of its mysterious character under the influence of Homeric and classical Greek rationalism. Hence, Greco-Roman myths tended to evolve into narrative accounts that provided virtually a universal history, but did little to reveal the inner mysteries of existence. Egyptian myth, however, was less concerned with extended narration, and was not bound to recount events in an orderly manner. Thus, it retained the ability to function as a flexible, symbolic mode of revelation. The Egyptian gods, unlike the anthropomorphic gods of the Greeks, were not understood to be limited to the forms in which iconography portrayed them. Horus was shown with a falcon's head and Anubis with that of a jackal, but these theriomorphic representations were symbolic means of articulating the sacredness and the otherness of the gods. Such iconography was an essential expression of myth, especially within a cultic context. As for the problem of the relationship between myth and cult, some writers suggest that the myth evolved from the cult while others maintain that the cult grew out of the myth. It is, however, most likely that myths and their cults evolved simultaneously, myth being primary in some cases and cult in others. Once established, myth and cult remained integral to one another and functioned in a complementary manner. The cult dramatized the myth, and the myth verbalized the cultic ritual which repeats, I think, something I said in the first episode from uh, the writer Joseph Campbell, who said that uh, a ritual is an enactment of a myth. Continue with the, with the essay here. In the wide variety of Egyptian myth, it is possible to see a logical system wherein the themes reflect a high degree of optimism, something we probably wouldn't have thought to hear from Egypt, optimism. Egyptian myth shows a strong affinity for systemization, a search for order that is evident in the traditions of creation. Out of chaos comes a comprehensible and organized unity. To articulate this unity, the Egyptian mythmakers did not follow abstract philosophical reasoning, but instead relied on observation of the natural world. The continuance of life through procreation provided a natural symbol for the order of the universe, and the symbol of the creative word reveals the Egyptian realization that beyond the natural world there is a divine mind. In this divine mind, the Egyptians saw the ultimate reason for the ongoing cycle of the natural world. They could depend on the sun to rise each morning because it was the birth of the sun god and because behind it there lay a supreme intellect. The annual Nile flood occurred because of the cyclical nature of the creation process. The recurring theme of a Trinitarian arrangement in threes for many of the gods further emphasizes the Egyptian awareness of the natural process of procreation. This optimism, however, did not blind the Egyptians to the negative forces in the universe. Myths that reflect struggle and tension reveal the awareness of the danger that chaos might erupt. Order was constantly in conflict with disorder, but ma'at was a mythical expression of the confidence that order would prevail. The struggle of Horace and Seth provided an example of this victory of order in both the natural and the political spheres. It was at this point that the divine, natural, and political orders met in the pharaoh. As the offspring of the sun god and himself a god incarnate, the pharaoh was a visible guarantee of stability. When one adds to this the symbol of the sun god, one can appreciate the Egyptian awareness of the existence of a supreme deity and the universalism this deity implies. Finally, one must take note... Of the stress that Egyptian myth placed on the theme of eternal life. It was, of course, Osiris who was responsible for granting this boon, but Egyptian mythological and theological thought gradually developed and the Sun God increased in prominence, particularly in his manifestation as Amun-Re, to the point that even the Book of Going Forth by Day, or the Book of the Dead, could open with an adoration of the Sun God, An acknowledgement of his power even in the realm of death. The Egyptians, as is testified by their myths, held a very positive outlook on their personal existence and on the stability of their environment. Dogmatic orthodoxy was of relatively little importance, and the variations in mythic expression indicate that they were not bound by the demands of a strict doctrinal system. What was important was the recognition of the reality of the divine world, the assurance that the power of Ma'at would sustain the cosmic and political orders, and that the life of the individual would continue even after death. The understanding of existence presented by Egyptian myth must therefore have been a highly satisfying spiritual experience. Egypt has left behind a wide variety of mythic material, Iconography in tombs and temples contains extensive portraiture of the gods, their cults, and many events of myth. Decorated coffins and elaborate copies of the Book of Going Forth by Day can also be useful for gaining an impression of the elaborate Egyptian concept of the divine world. Iconography is of little value without the written text to give it meaning, but the available textual material is sufficient to provide an extensive account of Egyptian myth. The Old Kingdom pyramid texts, the Middle Kingdom coffin texts, and the New Kingdom book of, of going forth by day contain an abundance of material on all aspects of Egyptian myth, and although such materials are not systematically arranged, they provide the modern reader with mythic texts as they would have been known to the Egyptians. The tale of the contendings of Horus and Seth contains a New Kingdom fictionalized and even humorous account of this important tradition. Also from the New Kingdom comes the text of the destruction of mankind, preserved on the walls of several royal tombs. The ancient Greek writer Plutarch provided a complete account of the myth of Isis and Osiris, which we read in a previous episode. Although one wonders how much of Plutarch's narrative is truly Egyptian, And how much has been recast in the form of a Greek myth. A more authentically Egyptian account of the Osiris myth can be found in the Great Hymn to Osiris, although the latter text is less a systematic narrative and more a part of liturgy. And that, I would say, uh, is what I've been trying to say all along. Uh, Egyptian myth as we have it is less a systematic narrative and more a part of liturgy. And one more tiny passage, this from the essay on mythological texts. Let's see here. This is what it says. The enduring nature of Egyptian myth is shown by the fact that even in the Ptolemaic and Roman periods, that is to say three 3,000 to 3,500 years after Egyptian civilization originated, hymns were produced in the classical format and language. From the Ptolemaic period, for example, there is a hieratic papyrus of the Book of Going Forth by Day, which belonged to a woman named Teret, and which contains copies of a lamentation of Isis and Nephthys over the dead Osiris. The details of the text show that the Osiris rituals had not waned in significance since the time of their institution. Ptolemaic temples were richly adorned with hymnic texts, notable among them the hymns to Khnum from the Esna temple, stressing the creative role of the god. The temple at Dendera provides the texts from the rituals of Hathor, and the Edfu temple gives evidence for the Horus rituals, particularly the so-called Play of Horus, a text which is both political and religious. Finally, mention must be made of the Temples of Philae, where the Temple of Isis provides hymns rich in both myth and ideology, written under Ptolemy II. These texts continue a tradition dating back to the days of Egyptian independence. Egyptian mythological texts are important as a stage in the development of world mythology but they also yield a wealth of information on Egyptian culture. The entire religious tradition was incorporated into the mythic system to the extent that the two were inseparable. Egyptian myth reveals a religious mentality which was highly adept at expressing the mysterious of the divine world through a system of complex symbolism. One can discern a religion that was non-dogmatic, flexible, and able to satisfy Egyptian spiritual needs for three millennia. Egyptian mythological texts frequently went beyond the expression of the religious and the ritualistic, and moved into abstract theology. Concepts of universalism and ideas approaching monotheism become apparent in certain texts, even though such texts retain a tendency use mythic symbolism. An integral part of the content of Egyptian texts are those myths that articulate the creation and the structure of the universe. Egyptian creation myths stress the order and the pattern in both the structure of the universe and its origin. The birth symbolism that Egyptian creation myths used underscores the fact that the Egyptians conceived their world as a living organism, in which all components were arranged in an orderly fashion that was a reflection of Ma'at, or order, as opposed to chaos. In this universe, even political and historical order had been divinely ordained. Hence, the mythologization of historical events and figures was a natural process for the Egyptians, and mythological texts can at times be used to shed light on the historical events of Egypt's past. Finally, Egyptian mythological texts, especially when combined with the instruction texts, provide insight into the Egyptian mentality. One can discern a positive outlook on life, the world, politics, nature, and the existence that the Egyptians expected after death. This attitude was also expressed in a highly developed moral code, which was an essential part of the Egyptian way of life. This code demanded not only abstention from immoral actions, but also an attempt to lead one's life in a constructive and positive manner. In general, it may be said that the mythological texts and other texts provide a picture of a people who grasped the positive values of life and attempted to live that life in a productive and joyful manner and with that we will leave the Egyptians for now and i would just like to say in closing or mention in closing one of my favorite remarks in any book about religion and this comes from uh, a great old set of books that was released about 100 years ago called the mythology of all races which is a wonderful set of books uh, although over the course of 13 volumes, you can't help but have a strikeout here or there. And on the very second page of the book about Egyptian mythology, the grumpy author who would appear to wish that he didn't have to write this book at all, can say that the Egyptians themselves were so utterly unable to reduce their religion to a reasonable system. And while we can argue about that, I guess the stuff that I read tonight suggests that scholars now believe that there is some sort of of a reasonable system to Egyptian mythology. I still think that uh, the proper response to a remark like that is that the experience of religion and ritual and of stories, and mythology, the experience of all of that comes first. The experience of living with these things, these rituals, and these stories, and these mythologies, and how they can change, and grow, and expand into unexpected places, or retract into unexpected places. That experience is primal. That experience is why The religion and the rituals and the myths exist at all, and that the scholarship and the attempts at summaries, and let alone the attempts at studies some 2,000 years later by some grumpy author, uh, those come second, and if we're being honest, sometimes they don't even have to come at all if your goal is the experience of a religion. Or of religious life. Um, we can tell from just what I've mentioned in this last episode uh, that I've mentioned an awful lot of, or the essays that I read from mentioned, a good number of other texts, other stories that I haven't read from, and I will give a link to all the books that I've read from so far uh, concerning Egypt in the post description, because I found uh, in preparing for uh, these episodes on Egypt that it has just made me want to jump back into the entire subject all over again, and do more and more and more episodes, although I will withhold myself and move on probably to Hinduism next week. But I hope that some sense of that enthusiasm comes through, and that what I've mentioned, what I've read from here, and the stories that I haven't been able to share fully here, and that the links that I offer and just anyone's general curiosity will easily lead them to find those other stories and find those other texts. I don't really see any need to be encyclopedic with this series. Uh, Life is short enough indeed, and uh, I think it's best to lead with your biases rather than pretend that they aren't there. And so all that I really hope to do with this series is to present my favorite of the myths, and those favorites will be different for other people, and I hope that this series helps people find those favorites if they don't have them already. I'm almost certain, however, that at some point, maybe in a few months or even in a year, there will be an epilogue to this section on Egypt. There is a wonderful uh, funerary book called the Amduat, the book of what is in the underworld, I believe is what what it's called in English. And when I first came across the pyramid texts, more than... 14, 16 years ago now, I also saw mention of this book called the Amduat, and the creative people out there will understand where I'm coming from, I'm sure, when I say that I first heard about this book 16 years ago. I first found a decent English translation of it, and some other books about it, maybe 8 or 10 years ago and the entire time I've been planning to read it, planning to write a long poem about it, and now planning to do a podcast about it, I know that whenever it comes, it will be a great deal of fun, and I can feel the shape of it and the weight of it in my mind, and I know that it's back there, and at some point it will emerge, and that will be another fun episode to do once I get there. But until then, thank you for listening, and until next time. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.